working our way through, verse by verse, throughout the book of 1 Peter, now in the fifth chapter. And I'm going to pick up the reading today in verse 1, read through verse 4, a segment that we began to look at last time. We're going to continue to look at this time, and I'll let you in on a secret. We'll be looking at next time, too. All right, there's uh, just a lot going on in these opening verses, and I don't want to, I want to do them justice so that we understand what God is wanting us to understand about leadership. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who has spoken. And in your mercy and grace ensured that the things that you breathed out and said would get written down for us accurately. And beyond that, through the working of your Holy Spirit, you promised to illumine our hearts when we read the things that you've said. So Lord, in our time together, would you do that? Through the working of your Spirit, plant your word within us. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand its implications in terms of our beliefs, in terms of our behaviors. Do that work, Lord. And give us an alertness of mind this day as we have a chance to be in your word that we might learn of you. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, last time we began to look at this fifth chapter, these opening verses in the fifth chapter focus in on the issue of local church leadership. Uh, one of the conclusions that you can draw from that is that apparently God has a, has a way he wants local church leadership to work. He wouldn't speak about it unless he thought there's something you need to understand about it. Uh, so that makes clear. And the other thing tied to that that we need to remind ourselves about is that whenever God speaks about an issue, and leadership isn't the only issue, but let's look at leadership. Whenever God speaks about leadership, whatever he says overrules whatever you say about leadership or any other person says about leadership. By definition, what God says is really what's right about leadership, not what we say. His commands about leadership as we encounter them here, local church leadership, uh, as we encounter them here in these opening verses of the fifth chapter, underscore for us a theme that has been unfolding throughout 1 Peter. And that theme is God has called us to be countercultural, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. By definition, he expects us to look differently and to act differently than the natural world around us, the fallen world. We've seen lots of examples of what it means to live counterculturally throughout chapter 1, chapter 2, into chapter 3 uh, in First Peter. Now in the fifth chapter, he's saying, listen, I want you to be countercultural in the way leadership works out in the context of the church, the flock. 
I want you to be countercultural. I remember speaking to a group of pastors not that long ago, but uh, I posed the question to them. When you think about the way the church is unfolding that you're a part of and whatever, and uh, uh, how many of you feel that the way leadership is operating in your church is counter-cultural? In other words, the world has a way of approaching things. Is the way you approach things distinctively different from the way the world approaches things? And it might not surprise you that uh, the response of those pastors was, sadly, no. It's not distinctively different in the way that we do things from the way the world around us does things. Now, they weren't talking about ethical and moral failures. Uh, That would go without saying, if you're in leadership in the church, you ought not to use that position to do morally, ethically wrong things. So they they weren't talking about that. They were just saying about the nature of leadership. We had an idea about it, and we have a sense that what the idea we have isn't a biblical idea. We're, we're programmed by the culture. Well, it's a countercultural thing. God wants leadership in a local body of believers to function in a way that is in marked contrast to the way the world approaches leadership, whether that leadership's on an organizational level, on a civic level, uh, military level, uh, lots of levels in which uh, organization and leadership can function uh, in the society of which we're a part. But God wants us to be countercultural. He wants the local church leadership to be distinctive. He doesn't want us to look like the world's organizations. He doesn't want us to be operating like the world operates, even at its best. All right, and we're not. We go without saying, I suppose, that he doesn't want us to operate in a way that's exploitative and, and, and sinful. But even in organizational structures in the society around us that are, by definition, the exemplars, God says, "I don't want you to look like that." Now that's pretty astounding stuff, really. If if we understand that's what God is saying, I was thinking of Matthew chapter twenty. I mentioned this last week, but. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is speaking to his apostles, his disciples, about leadership. And in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 20, he says, But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, meaning all of those in leadership positions, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so. Among you, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, should leadership be countercultural? I, I think so. I mean, it, certainly Jesus is making that plain in Matthew, but here we encounter it too. Uh, it shall not be so among you. Oh, would, it, would God allow it to be true that here and other places it could be said it shall not be so 
among you. <laughs> that we're not like that. Uh, not like what is the norm. What is like the world just absorbed in. I talked last week about this, that we should be very cautious about trying to apply secular management theories to help the church run better. And I told you I'd been, uh, you know, done counseling, consulting, uh, because I taught in, on a doctoral level issues related to management and leadership development, uh, consulted with governments, con- government agencies, consulted with corporations, large corporations on that topic. Uh, churches want consulting on that topic. I refuse to do it. Because I thought that's the worst thing that can happen to a church. You want to know some principles that can help you with a group of sinful people, most of them are not redeemed, to sort of function rather than turn into chaos. Management techniques work pretty good there. God doesn't want the church to work that way. Why? Because he wants it to work bad? No, but he has a different way he wants it to operate. And because, by definition, the church is supposed to be made up of not a mix, but redeemed, principles ought to be different there. They ought to be different. I'm convinced. Uh, and again, I, I, as a graduate professor at Penn State University teaching on these things, I, I understand the theories, and, and I'm not ashamed of having taught them in, in a secular world and two secular agencies, but brothers and sisters, those theories provide a wisdom not likely to produce a countercultural light in the midst of a fallen world. They won't do it. But they may produce what the world perceives to be a growing concern. Uh, a, a vital, powerful, efficient, effective sort of thing. But since when does the world's perception of what is successful match up to what God's saying is successful? We ought to just say, wait a second, wait a second. Who are we trying to impress anyway? Well, last time we looked at the first of the leadership principles that we encounter, which is to accept that God actually intends there to be leadership in a local church. And I said that was so crucial for us to understand. He wouldn't have spoke about it if that wasn't the case. But it's important for us because we live in a culture that glorifies individualism, that sees as the, uh, naively so, that the ultimate thing is to get to the point where you don't need any authority, you don't need any government, let's just live in a utopian, uh, non-authoritative structure. We already saw in the scriptures, Genesis 5 and 6 tells us all that does is lead to disaster uh, because of sinful humanity, and that's the reason that God even instituted as a special grace from him, civil government, holding the sword to try to keep some of the abuses of sin under control. There's no example in any of history of utopias emerging out of the essential goodness of the human heart. Not a single one. Isn't it amazing, and despite that historically, that the, the average person in the world clings to the belief that somehow human beings are going to solve their problem and, and bring about this stuff. And often we'll point to governing authorities as the problem. You know, we'd do all right if you weren't here. You can remember, uh, you know, two years ago, people saying that uh, in Portland, Oregon, or other places. Oh, just get rid of some of the, too many police, let's get rid of some of the authorities. We'll work it out. Uh, did it work out? No, no, not really. Uh, it kind of got worse. Uh, in this circumstance. Why? Because that's the human nature. God says, the local church needs leadership. It's just, the flock is just going to drift if there's not leadership. 
and the point of fact is we have one called the lion who talks about seeking someone to devour, the enemy of our souls. He'll talk about that a little bit later on here in the fifth chapter. Uh, he likes nothing better than unled groups. Yeah, meal time. You know, Satan is after it. The Bible gives us different terminologies, different titles, interchangeable titles for church leaders. <laughs> it's not like there aren't some good titles to give to church leaders. But the real issue isn't the proper names. The real issue is the proper practice on the part of leaders. And there's where we come up short. People could argue forever over a way to call this person a presbyter or an elder or a deacon. And when they ought to be arguing out, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, you can have the proper title and not be biblical in your performance. Well, that's all by way of review. Let's get into what our verses say today. Yeah, sorry, I went a little long. That's just the way it is. Uh, Lesson two. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Lesson number two, local church leaders are primarily shepherds, not rulers. Local church leaders are primarily shepherds. I didn't say that. God said that. All right? God said that. What comes to your mind when you think local church leaders? Does the idea of power, ruler, boss push to the front? I mean, what do you think inside? You don't have to tell me, just think about it. Or does the idea shepherd come to your mind? I suspect if people are honest about it, shepherd might not be the first thing that comes to their mind when they think about church leadership. It's the first thing that comes to the Lord Jesus' mind Shepherd. Shepherd. God makes it plain here. The proper model for leadership in the church is a shepherd model. Now, does that mean if leaders, shepherds, have no authority? Well, they do have authority. Yeah, it's not like that doesn't exist there. And there's some things he has to say about the exercise of authority. But it doesn't start there. Remember, again, go back to Matthew. You know, this is the way it works in the world. Not so among you. You know, this is not ruling over. That's not how I want leadership to function. Church leaders have some authority, but they don't reign. You know, reign in the sense of being a king. Reign in the sense of being a ruler. Reign in the sense, religiously, of being like the high priest that everybody's got to go through. You can't get to God. Or... In the corporate sense, reign like they're the boss. And they own the business. You do what I say, you know. That's not what the scripture tells us. So whatever the managerial structure is, it isn't that. It isn't that. Instead, they're shepherds. Providing teaching and guidance and protection for this local family that he calls a flock. 
That's, that's what leadership is. So what does the Bible mean when it says, well, let me rephrase it. What's the Bible mean when it commands, so let's, let's call a spade a spade here. God commands shepherding. That's, it's not a suggestion, like let's have a vote on it. I mean, God doesn't lay it out for us as one of multiple options. This is what he says, what I want you to do. This is the command. I want you to shepherd the flock. So what in the world does that mean? Well, one of the places that we can get some sense about that is in Ezekiel chapter 34, where in the Old Testament setting, God is confronting Israel's leaders that he calls shepherds because they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. So if you want, in a negative sense, to understand, well, what's shepherding mean? He tells us. Let me read these verses. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Not yourself. Feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strays you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and then with force and harshness you've ruled over the ones you have. So if you're trying to understand, well, what's he mean by shepherd? What is, what is that supposed to be when he says the leader's supposed to do it? Well, I suggest it means that you're supposed to feed and strengthen the flock. You know, I mean, it, didn't that seem evident to you as you're reading through that? Feed and strengthen the flock. Heal the sick. Bind up the injured. A lot of sick and injured. That's what it means in a fallen world. All of us get sick a lot. All of us get injured a lot. Bind them up. Help them. Uh, that's shepherding. Bring back the strays. Uh, seek the lost. Okay, get that in my mind. What's God saying if I'm a leader I'm supposed to be all about? Feeding, strengthening, healing, binding, bringing back, seeking. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, when do I fit that in? Because my administrative duties take about five-sixths or possibly nine-tenths of the week. Well... We'll get to that question. <laughs> uh, we see an example in the positive about what it means to shepherd the flock when Paul, on his final visit with the Ephesian elders, as he was on his way to Jerusalem and eventual imprisonment and eventual martyrdom, in Acts chapter 20, he's recounting his time with them, the period of time when he was the shepherd, not just the evangelist, but he was the shepherd at Ephesus. He was the founder of that church and the establisher of it. Notice what he says, starting in verse 18 of Acts chapter 20. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots, through the plots of the Jews. How I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. How would you like the Holy Spirit telling you that uh, each day? 
But I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, what was that ministry? He says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know none of you, that none of you among whom I've gone and about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It wasn't just the gospel he shared. The whole counsel of God. This. He says, I shared what you had here. And therefore I'm innocent of your blood. Uh, so he taught them the word. Taught it privately. Taught it publicly. Went to them in humility. Empathetic tears. Declared to them the whole counsel of God. Even when what God had to say wasn't popular. Even when what God had to say called into question your own priorities, your own choices, he said, no, I'm a shepherd. I got that's what I gotta do. I gotta, gotta let this be known. I was thinking to myself how if we're trying to get a handle on what God means by shepherd the flock, and obviously that's an important thing to him. Shepherd the flock. I think Acts chapter twenty, this New Testament picture, and Ezekiel thirty four link closely to Jesus dealing with Peter in John chapter 21, after Peter blew it pretty well, which puts him in the category of all who are shepherds of the flock. <laughs> we all know what it means to blow it pretty well. And, uh, and notice what he says to him. After they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, starting in verse 15 of the 21st chapter of John, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, there's a whole lot more going on in those verses than the issue of shepherding. But I don't want you to miss that that is central to the challenge to him. You love me? Feed. Tend. Carry it out. Now, how was he to do that? How was he to feed the sheep? Not to come up with clever sermons, brothers and sisters. He was to take that which we live upon, every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was to feed them. Feed my sheep. Tend them. You say, well, what's, what's pastoring? What's, what's shepherding about? Feeding them the word. That's what it's about on a one-on-one -on -one level, sharing on a formal level, teaching. Now, if that's the case, and by the way, it is, that's rhetorical. That is the case. That's what it's supposed to be. How do we account for the fact that, almost without exception, all of those who are in authority, all of those who do studies on it, all of those who do polls on it, say one of the great problems of what's called evangelicalism in the United States is biblical illiteracy. Now, if shepherds, by definition in God's plan, are supposed to be feeding the word, how in the world do you have such widespread biblical illiteracy? Because they're not shepherding. 
whatever it is else they're doing, it's not shepherding. Yeah, but they're nice guys. Well, maybe so. But they're not shepherding. If I'm a doctor, and you come to me for help, and I show you what a good woodcarver I am, it doesn't take away that I'm a good woodcarver, but it's beside the point. You came to me because you needed help. You needed me to use professional skills as a doctor to address your issue. Brothers and sisters, it's irrelevant that a man is a good speaker. It's irrelevant that a person is entertaining in their speech. They're put in the place by God and his plan to feed, not paint the corral. Feed, feed, feed. When we're working with these pastors, mentoring them over in Africa, I've told this to you before. They're in an environment where even those groups that are called Christian, they don't, people don't even have the Bible. They're never taught the Bible. And when they began to teach the Bible, which is one of the things I do with them, to say, okay, well, listen, your task is to shepherd. You're going to do that unless you're feeding them the word. And people's response to them in country after country is, you mean God said that? And of course, yeah. And you know what the people's response is? Well, then we need to do it. You know what the problem here is? People don't have the slightest idea what God said. So why is it so surprising they're not doing what God said to do? I mean, it's like, well, I didn't know he meant that. I didn't know he said it. Well, feed the sheep. Share the word. That's how you feed. Uh, Not that we can't improve how we teach and not that there's not teaching skills, and I'm not implying that that doesn't come into play. Brothers and sisters, those seminaries that purport to still hold to the Word of God would do vastly better by doing away with the six homiletic courses generally required of their pastors so that they can preach well when they get out and replace them with six expositional courses so they understand what it is that they're supposed to be telling people. I don't care if they do a fancy job of it or not. Get to what God said. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Now, a side note on this. Not making much progress, I understand. But a side note on this issue. If God intends that the local church leader be a shepherd, and obviously he does. I mean, that's what the point is here. How big a flock can a shepherd tend to? I think that's a pretty important question, really. Uh, We don't have an absolute answer for it, but I think it's a pretty good question. How big a flock can a shepherd handle? Uh, I was doing some study on this, as you might expect. And uh, and agricultural authorities say, say, well, when we're looking, especially looking at more historical pictures as well as contemporary pictures of raising flocks in more let's say even in uh, more rural areas of the Middle East or North Africa or whatever, uh, they said generally what we find is that a shepherd, an individual shepherd, can handle a flock anywhere from two dozen to maybe 150, 12 dozen, you know, somewhere in that range, depending on how good a shepherd they are. 
how turbulent the terrain is, you know. And uh, I mean, there's variables in it, but they can handle about that. So how big a flock? Why does God use the word shepherd here and, and flock? Because he does. He uses those terms. I was thinking in Matthew chapter 18 and, and in Luke chapter 15, you encounter a parable, uh, repeated parable by the Lord Jesus Christ, where he's, he's giving us the parable of the, of the lost sheep and the shepherd. How many sheep were, was that shepherd taking care of? A hundred. And found one of them gone. My guess is that if you were taking care of 500, you may not have known one was gone. But that's just my guess. But a uh, hundred. Why? Because the people he was speaking to, not it's God's word, of course, but the people he is speaking to would have known that's about the size of a flock. That's, that's, that, they would have not seen anything unusual in the parable about that part of it. That the shepherd would have left them all here and gone after the one. That maybe was kind of, wow. You know, that's the way God is. But the size wasn't so puzzling to them. That's what it took. That's about what it was. Uh, you have some examples in the scriptures of rich people who had multiple flocks. Good example. Abraham had multiple flocks. Jacob came back with multiple flocks. It, it didn't, they didn't bring the flocks like you, like you bring cattle in the Old West uh, to Dodge City. I mean, where you, you've got hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of them and a bunch of cowboys surrounding it trying to get it. That's not the way it worked. If you had multiple flocks... You had multiple individual flocks. Just happened to be one person owned them all, that's all. But they didn't merge them together for cost efficiency's sake. You had, you had different shepherds over all of the flocks that made up the multiple flock. You following me? All right, this is you know, not profound stuff, but uh, worth thinking about. Here's what occurs to me. Maybe God intends the local church to be more flock size instead of multiple flock size. Does that mean God doesn't want multiple flocks? Oh, no, he wants multiple flocks. <laughs> Remember, he's, it's all God's flock, as he goes on to say in these verses. No, God's interested in growth. He's interested in all that sort of stuff. But getting down to the individual flock, how, how big can a flock be? I don't know. I, I couldn't give an, a, an answer to that except to say we better think about that question a little bit because it has a lot of implications. Uh, certain size flocks work against the shepherd mentality. Why? Well, psychosocial reasons. The larger a group gets, the more effort has to be put into keeping the group out of chaos to make it function, uh, the amount of structural things that have to be in place, the amount of administrative tasks that have to be carried out, the way to make it work requires vastly more of that sort of form. Uh, if, you're, if I'm consulting a business and they're wanting to grow from this size to this size, uh, there's a whole lot more administrative structure needs to be put in place to make that happen. <laughs> you know, that's just the reality of it. Uh, and as a result, the larger a group gets, the more in desperation they tend to pressure whoever's called shepherd, even if they don't use that word, into assuming greater and greater administrative role. Because in desperation, they have to. How do you keep it from just becoming chaos? You need 
more and more centralized control. Uh, and as a result, the pastor, the shepherd, often becomes more of a CEO administrator than they, than they are a shepherd. That, that becomes the clearer description of them. You know, by the way, I was looking at some, at some uh, conferences that were being promoted, uh, and the conferences were fine, the things, but the speakers at the conferences, which was, this was a conservative, uh, you know, people committed to inspiration of scripture kind of group, a number of the speakers at it were people who were called, uh, who, whose actual title was Pastor CEO of this Bible church. Pastor CEO of this. And of course, you know, from my background, I look at that and say, well, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second here. Uh, I know all about CEO, trained some of those. Uh, I don't think that's the right way. I don't think, I think what this represents is that maybe it's no longer a flock that this person's over, but a rich person over a lot of flocks. And they decided we're going to try to put them all in one barn. Bad choice. Bad choice. Well, I think it maybe makes economic sense, doesn't it? Well, I don't think it does, but let's assume for a moment it did. So what? So what? It's not a good choice. Not a good choice. I was thinking of church growth issues. You know, what's better? To keep seeking to enlarge a single flock so the people in the community around you get impressed by what a big flock you've got? Or how big a barn you need to house them? I don't think that's what is meant by light in the darkness, brothers and sisters. And besides, I don't care what you do, there'll be a secular group that's more successful and creates more impressive facilities. I mean, you're not going to win a basically lost humanity because they're impressed with the facility. Like, well, God must be there. I don't think they're thinking God must be there. They're thinking somebody's raking it in. Somebody's got a lot of people they're deceiving. Somebody's got the good thing going for them. Don't you know the people I know that are in the world? How do they think? I mean, that's, that's the way it is. Maybe if they saw just, instead of one multi-flock, they saw 12 families gathered in shepherd flocks, vital, real places, would even know if you visited. Uh, I don't know. Food for thought. You know, something to think about uh, in this in this regard. I'm looking. I'm looking at that time. Uh, well, there's no way to do the next. Uh, uh, no way to do the next. Lesson about leadership, justice. I'll tell you the lesson. We'll come back to it, Lord willing, next time. Be patient with me, brothers and sisters. As I work through this, you wouldn't believe all I'm not telling you. Because because I believe this is the, perhaps, the critical disaster in the evangelical church in America. An uncritical movement into the totally wrong models. People's hearts aren't wrong, but you got the wrong model. Ain't gonna work. Ain't gonna work. So I figure we need to spend some time uh, on these verses to say, well, does God have anything to say about 
leadership? Uh, yeah, 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 some pretty important things to say to us about it, and we need to know it. That next lesson, by the way, that I'll just tell you and will develop, as you can sort of expect a little bit more, is this. God reminds leaders, and by design, everybody else in a church, that the flock is actually God's flock, not theirs. For those that tend to feel very possessive over their group. God's group. It's God's flock. Not your flock. God's flock. Uh, the assigned leaders don't own the flock. Which is, again, contrast to the world's mentality. I developed it. It's mine. Who developed the church? I mean, <laughs> let's be honest about it. You might have developed something you call a church, but you didn't. if there's a church, it didn't that you developed it. God did it. Through the Spirit, through His Word. Oh, may God give us sanity, brothers and sisters. Because the world is subtle in its influence over us. It doesn't always take the form of trying to get us to do immoral things. It can take the form of trying to get us to do the things God wants us to do in the wrong way. It wins either way. God, for reasons I don't understand, allowed me to have influence on other levels, both in the church but also in the secular world around us. God says these are different things. The world around us and his redeemed people. They're different things. We better be careful trying to treat them as if they're not different things. And leadership is one of those places where we can end up with good intentions making ultimately disastrous decisions. And may God keep that from happening for all groups. Who will receive us because he died for us. Good news. Good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to gather as a church family this morning to sing songs, to praise you, and to worship you, to share in our prayer concerns together, to encourage one another to be in your word. Thank you for saving us, and thank you for placing us in family. Be with us in this day and in this week ahead. Enable us that we might live lives worthy of the calling you've given us. Worthy because of the enablement that comes only from you through your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Good to have you here today.